Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see everybody in person again. And uh, for those of you who noticed uh, at the last colloquium that I forgot to put my mask on when I sat back down, I've given Rhonda permission to conk me on the head if I forget again today. But um, It's great to be able to do these things in person, but also to have people joining us online. So welcome to all of you, however, however you're reaching us today. Um, we're very pleased to uh, be able to hear from uh, Andrea Sainer, who is Associate Professor of Old Testament here at EMU. She teaches both in the seminary and in our undergraduate Bible and Religion program. Uh, Andrea did her doctoral work at Durham University in England, uh, and received her degree in 2014, soon after she started working here in 2013. So she's been here now for, test my math, eight years, huh? uh, in your ninth year. So um, she's going to be talking to us uh, today about her work on the book of Exodus. Uh, she's currently in the midst of working on a commentary in ex uh, on Exodus, which is a huge undertaking for those of you who've ever even picked up a commentary. So. Uh, very impressive. Her title today is In Many and Various Ways, How the Ten Commandments and Covenant Code Became Torah. Welcome, Andrea. Uh, thank you, Provost Fredness, for the introduction. Thanks also to Diane Ferrer, Rhonda Rittenhouse, Clay Showalter, and others who have organized this event, and to each of you for being here. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you a little bit about uh, the work that I did on my sabbatical last spring. And thanks also to the Provost's office and to my colleagues in Bible and Religion in the seminary. And also, very notably, the librarians in Hartzler Library who made my sabbatical possible. Um, even during pandemic times, my, uh, the librarians got me all, all of the ILL books and were patient even as they, they neared their due dates and even went over them sometimes. Um, my sabbatical work had two projects, which are here on the left, um, a chapter on theological Theological Interpretation of Scripture for the Cambridge Companion on Christian Doctrine, which is being edited by Mike Allen. And in that essay, I talk about theological interpretation of Scripture in two ways. First, as a task of Christians who are reading Christian Scripture uh, in a way that's ordered toward knowledge and love of God and others. Um, and then I also talk about theological interpretation as a movement uh, particular to uh, English language scholarship uh, beginning in the 1990s, a uh, kind of collaboration of mainline Protestant, Catholic, and evangelical scholars working around a set of, of kind of shared commitments and characteristics um, as shifts in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation kind of took place prior to the 1990s. One of those shared commitments is a kind of critique of the dominance of historical criticism in academic biblical studies um, up to and into the 20th century. That's all I'm gonna say about the first project for the moment, um, or even for the talk. I'm, I'm hoping that what I say and the rest of this will say something about what I think theological interpretation is, can and should and could be um, into the future. My second sabbatical project is the longer term one that Fred mentioned, um, a commentary on Exodus for the TNT Clark International Theological Commentary Series. Um, and in that work, I'm building on my monograph, Too Much to Grasp, which is in the picture, uh, Exodus 3, 13 to 15, and the Reality of God, in which I bring together and bridge uh, interpretive traditions of um, the story, the revelation of God's name at, um, in Exodus 3 at the burning bush to Moses in light of the, uh, the Greek text as well as the Hebrew text. And so I'm kind of extending some of that into the work on Exodus, but 
in the Exodus commentary, I've started in the middle of the book, um, which is a, kind of an odd place to start, but I've started with chapter 19. And so it's, it's Exodus 19 to 24, which is what um, we'll be, I'll be thinking about with you and, and talking about um, a bit this afternoon. The title of the talk um, is here, and I want to say a little bit about some of the words, starting with the subtitle. Uh, how the Ten Commandments and Covenant Code became Torah. So the how and became here, I'm interested in the historical development of the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue and the Covenant Code, also known as the Book of the Covenant, these two sections within Exodus 19 to 24 that I'll say a little bit more about in a moment. But I'm interested in kind of how they came, how they came to be and specifically how they came to be Torah but you're gonna need to talk, people in the room are gonna need to talk to me a little bit for a moment. What is Torah? There are a lot of ways you can answer this question, so I'm ready for loads of them. You're probably right, whatever you're thinking right now. You can do it. Law. Law. Story. Story. Teaching. Teaching. The first five books of the Jewish Bible. Scripture. Scripture. This is great. Yes. Any more? Yeah, so the word Torah, it's a Hebrew word. Um, the, the, the verbal root refers to uh, teaching or instruction. It's often translated law, but not necessarily that. Um, it also refers to the first five books of Hebrew Bible, um, Israel scriptures, sometimes referred to as the Greek, uh, in, as the Pentateuch. Um, by extension, the whole Tanakh, all of the, the, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, so the whole of the Hebrew scriptures can be referred to sometimes as the Torah. Um, Jewish tradition, of course, there's written Torah and oral Torah, so all of this is kind of guidance, instruction. So I'm interested in the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code and how they became all of sort of these things, both part of the written text of Exodus, which is part of the Torah, those five books, as well as in what sense they're kind of instruction or they come to be instruction. The title, the main title, in many and various ways comes from the opening of the letter to the Hebrew and the to the Hebrews in the Christian New Testament. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And in this passage, I take the ancestors and the prophets here to refer to a wide range of figures to whom God revealed God's self prior to um, what is referred to here and what the, the author of Hebrews is particularly interested in, uh, who is the son. I'm really particularly in, interested in the first clause here in the many and various ways that God is revealing God's self in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. Um, this, so I'm interested in thinking theologically about the development of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the Covenant Code as Torah um, in relationship to how God reveals God's self to people in the Hebrew Scriptures. And as I was thinking about how I would kind of go about this colloquium, I kept coming back to this book, Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, which is authored by Benjamin Summer, who's on the faculty of Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, I read this book really carefully a number of years ago, bef well before my sabbatical, um, and I'm not actually going to refer directly to Summer again in the talk, but I wanted you to know, uh, first, I wanted to encourage you to go read this book, which is in the library, and then secondly, I wanted you to know that, uh, that um, a lot of what I'm saying, uh, to me at least, is a kind of internal dialogue that I feel like I'm continuing to have with Summer and with this book. Um, in the book, Summer uh, first walks through um, the Hebrew texts of the Torah in relationship to the Sinai traditions, in relationship to these ideas of revelation and authority, and articulates, I think, really well some of the complexities there about how the Torah is revealed. Um, within the text. And then he goes on from there to uh, develop what he re refers to as a participatory theology of revelation, building on the work of Franz Rosenzweig and Abraham Heschel. 
Uh, and it's really terribly interesting, and so you should read it. Okay. Um, so it, to warm us up a little bit more, you're going to have to talk again. <laughs> this picture, this uh, is a painting by Marc Chagall in English. Moses receives the tablets of the law. What do you see here? Horns. <laughs> horns. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Um, yes, Moses, Moses has horns or rays of light. So there's the Hebrew word that is for rays um, gets translated. It also means horns, but it gets translated literally in the Latin into horns. And so throughout much uh, religious art, Moses is often depicted with horns. And here it's sort of a little bit of a combination, isn't it? They're kind of open horns, maybe similar to the lights, that are the lines coming down. The glory. This is the glory of Moses' shining face, is that's what the horns are, the rays. What else do you see? The hand of God. Yes. Which well, up there in the corner? Yeah, hands of, of God, maybe. <laughs> Moses offering the Ten Commandments up to God. Yeah, maybe we don't see the direction. There's no movement in the static image. Golden calf. Golden calf, yes, in the corner. Upper or on the left in sort of red. Yeah. Moses is suspended in the air, sort of, yeah. His body is contorted. Body is contorted. He's twisted a bit. A menorah. Yes. In the bottom right, a menorah. An angel with a scroll or something? Mm-hmm. In the back. A, an angel with a scroll or something. Yeah, I guess maybe that's what that is. I don't know what to call it. There's people like hanging out in the clouds where God's <laughs> there's, there's people, thank you, Brian. There's people hanging out in the cloud where the hands are. Um, yes, there are people up there in the upper right. So there's a lot going on in this painting. If you're really observant and know you're Book of Exodus very well. You'll, you should tell me this isn't Exodus 19 to 24. This is 32 to 34, and you would be right. Um, but in any case, the, the, uh, there's a lot going on. But I wanted us to think about how we view the revelation of the Ten Commandments or the Torah at Sinai. How do we think about it? Think about it as this handing off of stone tablets. In a way, there's a lot of people here, which is really interesting. Reminds me of the Jewish tradition of of all Jews being present, their souls being present at Sinai in some way. I don't know if that's exactly what Chagall was after, but there's certainly the Israelites over here, and the person in the bottom right doesn't look to me like an ancient Israelite. Um, okay, so you're warmed up. What I want to do is to walk through the text of Exodus 19 through 24, and I'm going to read this part um, so it doesn't take all day. To give you a bit of a summary of the text with particular attention to how, um, to what these texts say about the origins, the revelation of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, that's the same thing, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, and the Covenant Code. So after crossing the Red Sea and journeying through the desert, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai where God speaks to Moses a summary of the covenant that will be made there Reviewing what has happened in Egypt with the poetic language, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, and promising, should the people heed the divine voice, that they will be God's treasured possession, a priestly kingdom, and a holy nation. The Israelites commit to this covenant, saying, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the arrival at Sinai in the summary of the covenant. In the following section, God commands Moses to consecrate the people and prepare them for God's appearance on the third day, which he does. Then, there's, on the third day, there's thunder and lightning and thick cloud on the mountain, which is also wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended upon it in fire. A trumpet blasts so loud that the people tremble at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain also shook. 
As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. The scene is quite magnificent. In the next section, beginning at the beginning of chapter 20, this is God's declaration of the 10 words, the Decalogue. I put an abbreviated version of the NRSV on the slide. These words have particular prominence in the narrative as they appear to be spoken directly by God to the people. Though Moses' role is key in making, um, is key here, which actually makes the Exodus passage similar to the account that's in Deuteronomy that I'm going to jump to um, now. So this is, what, this is what we read immediately prior to the version of the Decalogue in Deuteronomy. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the fire. At that time I was standing between the Lord and you to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. So these two verses seem to be having a conversation with each other. Verse 4 says that the Lord spoke to the Israelites face to face. And then in verse 5, it's like, oh yeah, what the NRSV puts in parentheses. Um, also Moses is there, that Moses is the I. I was standing there. And in Exodus, it's similar, um, though it's articulated in a somewhat different way. After the Ten Commandments are given, then there's a little brief story. The narrator tells us that the Israelites were very afraid and asked Moses to intercede for them. So they say, Moses, you go up there. We're not going to hear from God anymore directly. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. God then imparts to Moses a series of stipulations which are outlined on the slide. This is what's referred to as the covenant code sometimes or the book of the covenant. The slide refers to apodictic and casuistic laws. Um, the former are ordinances that are general. They're not relative to particular events. The latter are case laws that have the, the um, Follow the format if X then Y. So, for example, when the ox, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Very reasonable. If the ox was prone to goring and the owner had been warned, then um, the owner shall also be put to death. So, X if X then Y. That's the casuistic style. After the covenant code then in chapter 24, uh, chapter 24 mirrors chapter 19. Moses recounts the words of the Lord and all of the stipulations to the people who respond with one voice. All, that the word, all of the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. With that, Moses writes, and this is the first time that Moses writes in the passage that I'm aware of, he writes all the words of the Lord. Moses commands the offering of the whole burnt offerings and well-being offerings, and he sprinkles some of the blood on the altar. Then Moses takes what's referred to as the Book of the Covenant, which is presumably what he had just written, and he reads it aloud, and all the people say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Then he takes the blood again, and he sprinkles the people this time. Then the elders and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu um, ascend the mountain, and according to the Hebrew text, they behold God and they eat and drink. Then God calls Moses up the mountain again and the glory of the Lord appears on the mountain first as a cloud or together with a cloud and then like devouring fire. Moses is then there for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the instructions for building the tabernacle, the ordination of priests and the stone tablets of witness. That's chapters um, 25 through 31. So we leave Moses going up the mountain again to receive the tabernacle blueprints at the end of 24. Okay, so after all of that, what does this suggest about the origins of the Decalogue and the Covenant Code? How should we think about them? Um, well, it's clear first that the Sinai traditions are very concerned with the relationship between God and humanity here, which is associated with the presence of God and Israel at the mountain. I brought you to myself is the language of chapter 19. At the mountain, this covenant is made um, between Israel and the God who has delivered her, which necessarily involves something that the people also will do and that they commit to kind of wholly and wholeheartedly multiple times in the story, even before the particular commandments are given. 
Second, the Decalogue and the Covenant Code, according to the narrative, seem to have their origins in the speech of God to humans, in particular to Israel. But this manner of speech and its subsequent writing are pretty complex. God speaking itself correlates with fire and smoke and thunder and lightning, quaking and trumpet blast, cloud and darkness. God's speech involves not only the imparting of some information, but God's own presence on the mountain. Moreover, it's not obvious that the people are prepared to receive God's speech. They have to prepare for it, and then they have to prepare for it again. And then even once they've prepared and the Decalogue is spoken, then they say, never mind, Moses, you go up. Um, so God is, is there and speaking, but there's also this kind of complex arrangement of how that works out. Also, uh, spatially, with regard to the mountain, um, the heights of the mountain, and, and where people can be at various stages. Third, there's this question of what is written. Um, later on in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy, uh, the text refers to the finger of God writing the Decalogue in stone. Probably. Then, uh, but back in Exodus 24, Moses writes all the words of the Lord and reads aloud the book of the covenant, which appears to have been what he wrote down. Um, what is written in red then in 24 is also interwoven with the commitment of the people to heed the words of God and with the sacrificial, the sacrificial actions with the blood. Fourth, Moses has a central role to play here in mediating the words of God, even those that seem to be spoken directly. Moses is still there. And there's also elders that have some sort of a role as, as leaders of Israel as well, and even speak for the people um, at one point earlier in, in the text. In some, there's a kind of complex relationship here that obtains between God's presence, the spoken word of God, the written word, Moses, the elders, and the Israelites. God's presence and spoken word seem to be primary. Moses' role and authority are in relation to God and in service to the people. The Decalogue, in particular, is primarily God's speech, uh, perhaps given directly to the Israelites and probably also written directly by God on these stone tablets. The people commit to the whole of what God has spoken directly and um, through Moses. I'm going to shift gears then to talk a little bit about how, um, to how it, uh, historians have come to think about, biblical scholars thinking historically have come to think about the development of the Covenant Code and the Decalogue um, a little bit. The, 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 the primary picture here, the dominant picture, um, is that the covenant code, uh, there are sort of two key points here. One, that it's the oldest legal code in the Hebrew Bible, and secondly, that it underwent a long period of writing and editing. Um, so uh, scholars have looked at the Hebrew Bible and identified three legal codes in particular in the Pentateuch. The Covenant Code, which is what we're talking about, the Deuteronomic Code in Deuteronomy 12 to 26, and what's called the Holiness Code, which is in Leviticus 17 through 26. Um, taking the fact that these texts could be looked at with an eye toward um, the kind of society they seem to depict uh, when they're compared with each other, and sort of comparing them with each other and thinking about how one might move from one to the next, uh, they're placed in chronological order, and this is the order, covenant code, Deuteronomic code, holiness code. And this is why the covenant code tends to be described as being earliest. It assumes a loosely organized but settled agricultural society without a central worship site. It doesn't seem to require a strong monarchy. Its laws seem less equitable than the corresponding commands in the more humanitarian Deuteronomy. Um, for example, the slave law in Exodus is sometimes read as suggesting that on the seventh year, um, that in the seventh year, uh, male slaves can be released, but female slaves cannot be released. I don't think that's exactly what's going on in the Exodus version, but when that's compared to Deuteronomy, which is very clear that both male and female slaves are released in the seventh year, then it appears to be sort of less humanitarian. So Deuteronomy is revising Exodus. Also, similarities between the casuistic portions of the Book of the Covenant 
and um, other ancient Eastern Mediterranean legal texts have supported a relatively early date for at least some portion of the Book of the Covenant, in particular the Mesopotamian laws of Hammurabi, which date to um, the second millennium BC, show significant similarities with parts of the Covenant Code, and that's one of the reasons why it's tended to be, um, it's defended why it should be seen as the earliest. Secondly, um, the, the text of the Covenant Code appears to have undergone a long period of writing and editing due to the breadth of its content, various forms of law included within it, um, speech both about God and by God, and movement between you and y'all as the one to whom the text is being addressed. Also, there's a kind of superscription that's not actually at the beginning, and there's a kind of conclusion that's not actually at the end, suggesting that it was bookended at some point. Okay, so the, that picture, though, okay, we have three legal codes. This is the first one. It had a kind of independent literary editing period. It was kind of long. Um, has been challenged uh, from several sides. Here are two of, of some of the, the ways that this has been contested. First, the relative dating of the legal material in Exodus and Deuteronomy has been challenged. Um, John Van Cedars has argued persistently, if not entirely persuasively, uh, that the covenant code is exilic and thus postdates the Deuteronomic code as well as the holiness code. So instead of being first, it's actually third in that order of three. Others take less radical positions, but also argue that the covenant code is written or brought into a unity by a Deuteronomic redactor. Scholars also argue for the literary also scholars who argue for the literary influence of the laws of Hammurabi um, are are increasingly kind of questioning uh, whether that helps us date it so early or not. Like when were the Israelites who or the Judeans who might have had access to the law codes of Hammurabi? When could they actually copy? Like when could they actually borrow that literarily? When would they have access to that? And so, for example, David Wright argues that this date should date to the Neo-Assyrian period, which would be like the seventh century BC, which is a long time before Moses, for example. Sorry, not before. After that's key. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we have this kind of consensus, but there are big questions raised about it. The second sort of challenge to this consensus of the kind of early dating of the Covenant Code has to do with discussions of the scribal origins of ancient legal texts. Um, Bruce Wells offers a kind of typology of approaches to the Pentateuchal law. So uh, what he refers to here as authoritative law would be if you take you know, these three law codes and you say they were all used legislatively at one time in ancient Israel. So we could date them to a particular point when they would be in use and they would be read in order to make judicial decisions, in order to, to guide social institutions of the time. Okay, so that would be authoritative law. The, the threefold, like the covenant code is first and then Deuteronomic code and then holiness code depends on the second framework for thinking about this B, which is competing sets of authoritative law. So each of these codes could have been in use at particular or were in use at particular times within Israelite history, Judean history, and they, um, are not a harmony, they, they conflict with each other, and one might be a revision of the other, the Deuteronomic Code could be a revision of the Exodus Code. But then there are other approaches now to thinking about the nature of these legal codes and indeed whether we should even call them legal codes at all. Um, it happens that there are, for example, Mesopotamian cuneiform scribes, they list of various things, a flora, a fauna, of medical symptoms and diagnoses of omens, perhaps also judicial decisions that were then described. So it could be, that would be the second, that would be D on this chart. Um, these are judicial decisions that happened, but they're not necessarily being used at normatively into the future. They could be academic treatises. There have been suggestions that um, they're more like wisdom literature, so meant to offer maybe hypothetical situations for a particular moral counsel or something like that, but not actually like legal texts in the sense that you might, one might think about what a legal text is. 
Okay, so we have this dominant picture or a sort of former consensus that the covenant code is the oldest legal code and the basis for Deuteronomic revisions at least. Then that's been sort of complicated. Um, it might be more theoretical in nature um, or maybe not even the oldest. I'm gonna say, I wanna say a little bit about the Decalogue and kind of the development of Israelite religion from a very broad scale overview, just sort of barely skimming the surface, um, before then trying to pull some of these pieces together. So if you're feeling a bit lost, you can come back to the first or the second commandment, depending on how you count. Um, will is or includes, you shall have no other gods before me. And what's here in the NRSV translated before me could mean many things. Prepositions are difficult in translation, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, and this one is no exception. It could be besides me or except me, in addition to me, alongside me, as in maybe in particularly in the cultic site, the me here is my face, which has to do with the divine presence. So there's like a, it's spatial. In any case, the commandment addresses the relationship between Israel and her God. It must be exclusive. There's a lot of literature on the development of Israelite religious history, tracing in particular um, monotheism in Israel. And monotheism is a difficult word. It's anachronistic in order to use it to talk about the Hebrew Bible, but we do need something. Um, monotheism in English, I believe, was first used by Henry Moore in the 17th century, a Cambridge Platonist, um, which, and so it, it doesn't quite map here. And I won't say any more about that. I, that is true, but I'm gonna use it anyway. There are a number of complex arguments here, but the majority position tends to date the advent of monotheism or something like self-conscious monotheism to the exilic period, to the sixth century BC. Um, for example, with the words of the prophet, second Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. It's not just, you shouldn't have any other gods beside me. They may be there, but don't, don't let them enter into our relationship. This is, there are no other gods. So the main, the, the primary view in thinking about the development of Israelite religion as regards to monotheism is this. There is development from something non-exclusive worship through something called monolatry, which is also anachronistic, but refers to exclusive worship of one God to something like monotheism in the sixth century. The challenge is, in particular, uh, get more so we can talk about Second Isaiah, and then the further back we get, the more difficult and the more contested kind of the discussion is. But for example, Mark Smith is one particularly articulate proponent of a nuanced version of the dominant view. Israel emerged in Canaan in the earliest period with shared polytheistic culture of other peoples in the land, including the worship of Baal, Baal, and Asherah and then from there developed into monolatry and monotheism. There are other voices, however, that take a different view. So that first one is referred to as evolutionary, so it's developmental, it moves through these various stages. Second one, sometimes referred to as revolutionary. The Israel underwent a sudden transformation that made it monotheistic, um, that made it have worship of one transcendent God whether that came about through a kind of new religious understanding. These are typically identified with Moses, but whether Moses learned this from his Midianite father-in-law, from Atenism in Egypt, or in some other fashion. The Jewish scholar Yechezkel Kaufman and the Christian scholar William Foxwell Albright are two names that are often identified um, with this kind of approach, but they uh, take sort of different tacks in addressing it. Okay, so to sort of step back, what is, is all of this sort of historical work leading to? Um, well, here's three questions that I'm sort of pondering. First, this development of Israelite religion. So does Israelite exclusive worship of its God go the whole way back historically? Or is it some sort of later development? How do you think about that? The dominant view being some kind of later development probably, but then how do you get from something like polytheism to monolatry? Not. 
Secondly, how does the writing of the Decalogue and the Covenant Code correspond to Israelite religious and social developments? So this is the big question around the nature of these texts. Are they legal in what sense? And then thirdly, how do the literary emphases on the presence of God and divine speech in Exodus 19 through 24 influence how we might think about those above questions? And one place that sort of the rubber meets the road, so if I've lost you, that's another point where you can come back. Think about the germinating seeds with me. So Father Thomas Joseph White has written the, the Exodus volume in the Brazos series, um, the Brazos Theological Commentary series. And he says this, he argues that theologically, seeds of mature development always lie in earlier forms. So the Lord whom Israel progressively comes to understand as almighty God who created the heaven and the earth is apprehended implicitly, though perhaps less perfectly from the beginning. There is a progressive rendering explicit through time of a revelation explicitly, implicitly given from the beginning. I'll say that again. There's a progressive rendering explicit through time of a revelation given implicitly from the beginning one need not posit a fully conceptually developed form of monotheism from its initial age of the emergence of Israelite religion, but one must posit an implicit one, whether its development can be charted out historically or not. Continuity of idea must be maintained as a core affirmation of divine revelation. So what White is saying here is that he well, he goes on to associate these seeds of mature development with an historical exodus and the exclusive worship commanded by the first commandment. He also argues for an early dating of the Book of the Covenant, that it's pre-Deuteronomic, and even that its laws in an incipient form may go back to the wilderness period. And now, I want to be clear, he doesn't think that um, the... Uh, uh, Israelite sort of monolatrist tendencies, tendencies toward worshiping only one God. He doesn't think that identifying that with an early stage in Israelite religion is historically um, implausible. He thinks it's historically plausible. He also uh, doesn't think it's historically demonstrable. So he doesn't think we can prove that that's the case. He also doesn't think that we can prove that it's not the case. But he does think that it's a theological imperative, at least for Christians, I think. He would name that as being a Christian imperative. Um, maybe you would make it wider than that. But it's at least a Christian imperative that the, um, the, that, that is present from the beginning. So it's a theological necessity, it's not a historical implausibility, and um, it's also not historically demonstrable. But it's not the case that he's trying to say that theology somehow trumps historical considerations. Right? He's not saying that. Um, yeah, sometimes the, sometimes the Brazos series has been taken as kind of ahistorical, and maybe sometimes it is. Um, I don't think that Father White is guilty of that, and he's a Thomist, and that comes through very clearly in his volume, but... Um, that's not what he's after. I'm just still not sure that he's right. He might be right. <laughs> um, and so this is, what, this is what I have been thinking a lot about, I guess, for the last several months is sort of whether um, he's right, and if so, why, and if not, why not? One of the questions I ask myself is sort of where are these seeds? So if there are sort of like seeds in an incipient form that then develop into maturity later on. Like, where are they? White recognizes that the Torah looks back earlier than Moses to the time of the ancestors. And then when God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush and says, I am the God of your ancestors, that is kind of drawing together what was revealed to the ancestors into um, what will be new in the Mosaic tradition. Uh, Walter Moberly's book from the early 90s, uh, Old Testament of the Old Testament, 
argues that the relationship between, and White cites him, um, the relationship between the ancestral traditions in Genesis and the Sinai Covenant are roughly analogous to the relationship in the Christian Bible between the Old and the New Testaments. So there's a kind of new covenant that is pooling together, um, is kind of gathering in uh, God's revelation to the ancestors prior and also doing something new. And that's what's happening at Sinai with the ancestors. So, but when I think about the seed, I have the question, well, like, does it keep going back? Like, are there seeds even before the ancestors? How far back do you go? Well, I'm sure White recognizes all of this, even a kind of weak claim that the seed of X or implicit Y must have been present at one point or another seems to me blurred in the recognition that the newness in the tradition is always itself an ingathering of what was given prior. Uh, secondly and thirdly, I can't quite square this language of the seed and the germinating seeds with some of the historical proposals that have been put forth nor with my own reading of the biblical text of Exodus 19 through 24, all of which to me seem to suggest that we must speak of a very large number of seeds indeed, many generative moments somehow related to Sinai, and many different ways that the revelation of Sinai is received by people. I don't think White would disagree with that, but the question is, seems to me a matter of emphasis and sort of like searching out a metaphor that will be satisfying. I don't have a satisfying metaphor, but I'm going to talk a little bit about this little book um, as kind of in lieu of a conclusion. And I'm not quite sure if it just further complicates everything <laughs> or if it draws some things together so you can take it as you will or not. So um, the French Jesuit, uh, Henri de Lubac, wrote this book in like 1960. And it's in the library and in the card in the back of the library copy, like the old card catalog, says it's been checked out one time in 1974. It was also, I checked with Jennifer Ulrich, who told me it was also checked out in 2014. But if you've never heard of it, um, <laughs> you won't be alone. But don't, please, don't take it out of the library. People should go read it now. Okay. Um, so, Early in this book, the first chapter, the idea of God, the second, the affirmation of God. And in the first chapter, he talks a little bit, De Lubach talks about um, revolutionary and evolutionary theories about the development of the idea of the one transcendent God. And he says, well, first, he likes the revolutionary ones a little better, but he's not satisfied with either. And this is why. He says that both of them mistake the effect for the cause we must not develop a theory of the emergence of the idea of the one transcendent God that ignores the reality of the one transcendent God, not at least if we're to view this emergence as people of faith. Rather, the idea of the one God springs up spontaneously at the heart of consciousness, whether as a result of the exigencies of reason or of some supernatural illumination, and imposes itself upon the mind of itself of its own necessity. De Lubach then quotes Hebrews 1.1, the many and various ways, suggesting that the ways that the one transcendent God makes God's self known don't admit of a singular hypothesis of origin. You just can't have one because God speaks in many and various ways at sundry times and in diverse manners, um, as the translation gives it. If this kind of inwardness feels a bit removed from Sinai, um, I want to offer two texts. They're actually from Deuteronomy and not from Exodus, but that's okay. This one's from Deuteronomy 30. Surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It's not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. So what's Moses saying at this point in Deuteronomy? Sinai has happened. Moses is giving all these speech to the Israelites before they enter into the land. Obviously, the word, the commandments are external to the people. 
But in some sense, he's, all, he's saying that they're also interior to the people. Maybe those ways are connected. Also, uh, the Shema is, is somewhat similar here. The text of Deuteronomy 6 that's so important in Jewish tradition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. De Lubach suggests that the external, external appeals to custom and tradition, authority, the teaching of religion, and so forth are not meant to compel reason nor to supplement it but to protect it, to protect it in particular against, in this lovely phrase in the English, the vertigo of the imagination. That is, the idea of God impinges itself, God meets people, and what must be sort of, there's a hedge against forgetting, getting dizzy, getting lost, and losing one's way in that. And that's how he's referring to the language of tradition, which seems to me somewhat similar to what Deuteronomy could perhaps be saying in chapter 6. You, the big thing that you're supposed to not do in the book of Deuteronomy is forget. You need to remember and observe all the commandments. The why do you talk about them and recite them and bind them and fix them? You do these things so that you remember these external means are to cultivate the inner remembering, the doing of the whole of the commandment of Sinai that, that God has given, um, which is what these texts and also what Exodus uh, 19 to 24, I think, seem to be about. Um, I think we have some time then for questions or comments. Is there any linguistic evidence of, that might be used to date these fragments to, to shine light on that? Which fragments? Um, uh, any of those three legal codes. Is, are they older than the rest of the text somehow? Are you aware of anything like that? Yeah, I mean, there are arguments about that. I'm trying to connect those legal texts, in particular to other biblical texts, there would be yeah, so like there's, um, it has to do with how you see the development of kind of all of the sources or editing layers of the Pentateuch as a whole. So um, in many cases, uh, the Covenant Code has tended to be separated out and has its sort of own literary history. But then there are arguments that it should be included in the wider literary history for various reasons. Um, but that, uh, yeah, I think the questions are more to do with, um, like, we can sprawl out some of the linguistic evidence, but then trying to relate them to each other is sort of the challenge. So it's easy to see how certain words and phrases are connected to each other, but then the ordering is the complicating factor. Have, have you worked at all with George Mendenhall's work on the treaties, Hittite treaties, and international treaties, and the structure of the book of Deuteronomy, for instance? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have so... Right, there are... Um, I'm trying to figure out how much to say. There are... There, there, uh, right, so uh, in the ancient world, there are a series of international treaties that look like the kinds of things that we get in Deuteronomy. This language of covenant seems to be kind of international treaty language where you have kind of a king um, and of a more powerful state and then sort of a lesser powerful state, and they, they make agreements with each other, like that you should only serve this king. Um, and then there are sort of stipulations for how that arrangement is kept. Um, and I... Yeah, there are, um, I mean, my, my understanding is that there are shifts in the, the, the as there are shifts in, in dating with 
other legal texts, with comparison texts, that that is true also for the treaty language. I mean, one of the sort of main questions is that you go to the, like the Hittite treaties or you go to like the vassal treaties of Esarhaddon and like where does the treaty language come from? And is it, if it's later, then is that the only one? Are the earlier treaties known? Does the treaty language, does it go the whole way back? I mean, you can kind of, repro you can reproduce um, a, lo a lot of those kinds of arguments, I think with the treaty stuff as well. Um, which, yeah, is very relevant. Um, I'm not sure it quite like solves the problems, but it sort of, it does also kind of recapitulate them. Uh, I'm really intrigued by the the many and various ways, obviously Hebrews is a big thing of, for me. Um, uh, but the way, you, the way you seem to summarize at the end in lieu of a conclusion was that there is some kind of a link in the understanding of the covenant code between what is internal as God speaks and what is external. So the Deuteronomy text about where you put it on your door and, and, and on your street and everything refers to practice, I think. Um, and as you know, uh, archaeologists have been going crazy about ev evidence of non-monolatry practice among the Israelites. Um, can you say anything about the practices that we might be able to identify with some of those early texts that would indicate the, the linking of the internal and the external. I mean, well, on, on, you know, until we actually can look at the temple in a much later period, we're kind of yeah. imagining. Do you have any thoughts on that earlier practice as, a, as representational of this covenant? It's a really lovely question. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. Um, yeah, I, I don't. Right, so, I mean, you're drawing up the, the, the question of, um, yeah, when we discover, when, when evidence of non-monolatrous practice is discovered, what does that mean? Um, is there a kind of prior teaching toward monolatry that then has been sort of forgotten or not? Is this just sort of what was accepted and how do you, how do you wrestle with that? I don't have, um, yeah, I don't have kind of evidence of early, uh, of the kind of thing that you're asking for. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just kind of connecting things to Deuteronomy as I read it. I mean, I think that, well, yeah, all I can think of is textual evidence. The thing particularly at the beginning of, um, one of these questions that sort of bugged me about Exodus 19 is that the people um, appear at Sinai and they say initially, yeah, like all that the Lord has spoken we will do, but the Lord hasn't spoken anything yet. Like they're, they're signing up for things they haven't heard what they are. And maybe that's just the nature of commitments. We all do that all the time. Um, or in particularly important areas of life. Um, but it, it might be, I mean, I, I wonder if there's something else going on there, that there is a kind of known assent to something that maybe isn't articulated, but it's, it's already there in some kind of incipient form, to use that language, um, that the people really know because God has met them and delivered them, and so they kind of know already what it is, even though it's not being articulated. Um, but that's not archaeological evidence. That's just how I think about the text. That all that the Lord has spoken we will do occurs again in chapter 23 or 24, kind of at, at the end. And it makes me wonder if there's a little bit of a storytelling or preachy thing. Hey, you're not as wise or smart or able as you think you are. But then you have to put that against your Deuteronomy passage at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, it's not so high that you can't reach it. You can you can attain this, right? Uh, but that's that's the the preacher 
thing coming through around the law, with the law. And I'll have the mic. Um, <laughs> do you make anything of the fact that the few times that we talk about the Ten Commandments, the Hebrew really is ten words, Devarim? Yeah, so um, I debated which, which word to put in the title of the talk, but yeah, so it's, it's not, and it's not even 10 words until later. I think chapter 34 refers to the 10 words. Um, so yeah, there's some, there's some sense in which, yeah, the words are there and they don't have kind of the nice and neat titles that we want to give them. Um, and it's not clear how you would get to 10, though 10's a handy number. Um, <laughs> Andrea, I was going to just try to say back what I'm hearing, like the of the last bit of the the talk about your your argument, like from the title, how, the many and varied ways. I guess what I, it seemed like at the end, you were, you've, you were canvassing all these single ways that biblical scholars try to get at um, sort of what is, this, like, what is the seed of monotheistic belief. Um, so it could be like a particular legal code from the ancient Near East. It could be a singular event on Sinai. It could be a certain legal tradition um, it could be uh, a set of like cultural practices. And then the, the game for biblical scholars is to sort of argue about which one of those is the, the most powerful sort of source of thinking for like about monotheism. And in surveying all those things, like maybe at the end, what you're trying to say is like, there are actually like many and varied ways, like somehow what we have in the Jewish Bible is this collection of all the different reminders that the Lord your God is one, something like that. Um, I guess I would just ask, like, does that seem like where the argument is going or like that's kind of what you're after is to, to allow room for these like multiple sources and that's the problem with like the seed metaphor is it implies like there was this kind of single moment. Um, yeah, thanks, Kevin. It's a real it's a real gift to have you try to articulate back what I was <laughs> trying to do because it helps me try to figure it out more clearly myself. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that um, I that it seems like we shouldn't put all the pressure on a historical moment. Um, even if there's quite a bit of pressure in the text on a part of the story, um, that to be a certain thing and to be kind of the, um, the seed or the casting of the seeds or whatever. Um, and I'm trying to work at ways of thinking about how diverse moments historically and, and geographically and textually kind of relate back to um, more decisive kind of collective moments as well. Just to follow up then, like, I think what you said about every, every new insight is sort of a, a gathering up of something that's happened before, right? Um, what I want to say. So, it seems like one, one um, pitfall of this sort of single origin thinking is that there's this idea like if God speaks authoritatively that the Lord your God is one, then after that like all Jews forever should just obey this and sort of think this way systematically. So if we find like examples of polytheism, it means like then there couldn't have been sometime before that this strong commitment to monotheism. Um, and that doesn't make much sense. Like, so there's, a, there's an idea that 
yeah, that the single origin should be all-powerful, but maybe it, it doesn't. It's sort of remembered and forgotten and remembered and forgotten. That's why we... So that's one thing. And then I guess the other thing would be, it would be really interesting is if in that Sinai story, it contains like these, and you got it that with the Hebrews verse, there are all these like multiple things happening there, right? So that uh, like, like part of the Sinai revelation is that the Lord your God is one is revealed in all these like multiple ways through thunder, through Moses' mediation, through the, like the reticence of the people. I'm not sure you could sort of read that text as going against biblical scholars' tendency to look for a kind of a single origin of Maybe that's, I think that's kind of what you're already doing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you.